Talk about tonight because we we have a tiny passage but a juicy sermon. I hope I shouldn't tell you how it's going to taste before you eat it, but I hope it's going to be good. But it's on a topic that everybody in the room is an expert in, at least because of the amount of time you you uh, had dealing with the topic or the the struggle and its fear. Uh, and so it's, a, it's I know I'm speaking to the choir in a sense. I'm speaking to people who are experts in knowing exactly what it means to be afraid or stressed out or frustrated or panicked. Um, And so uh, there's a lot for us to talk about. Short little passage, though, uh, in our series on close encounters with Jesus. Talk about a close encounter with Jesus. The one we're going to look at tonight is about as close as you might want to get to him. Um, (laughs) Stuff gets pretty scary in here. And so we're going to look at Luke 8. uh, And there's uh, three things we're going to talk about. Uh, They're on your sheet. First, fear interprets. It grows out of my interpretation of reality, not reality itself. Fear exposes. It shows me where I'm asleep, not where Jesus is asleep. And fear worships. Uh, The more I fear Jesus, the less I'll fear uh, all the other stuff in my life. But before I push on, I need to say something. Because some of you are Stoics. And you say, oh, I can check out because I'm not a fearful person. I'm laid back. Come what may, I roll with the punches. Like, I don't get worked up in a tizzy about stuff. Um, But here's the deal. Everybody... Uh, Fear is a native inhabitant of everybody's heart. Every human being, one of the native inhabitants of your heart is fear. Now, sometimes those native inhabitants wear different clothes. For some people, it looks like panic or terror. And you're you're a worrier. Anxiety is kind of the background noise of your life. It's always there. You're always fearing the next thing. But for some of us, you experience fear primarily through stress You always feel under the gun. You always feel like you're behind or you're late or you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And so fear expresses itself as stress. For some of you, uh, maybe some of the guys in the room, fear expresses itself through anger. Uh, And maybe you've never seen through your anger to see the fear underneath it. But for instance, uh, your, um, your girlfriend or your roommate asks for more of your time than you're willing to give them and you get angry at them. And they're like, why does he always get angry every time I want to spend time with him? Well, he's not angry that you want to spend time. He's afraid that he's going to lose control of his time. And instead of saying, I'm afraid, he says, no, or get back, or whatever. And so everybody in the room, I just put that out there so you don't tune out and say, I'm not a, I'm not a worry wart, and so I don't need to listen. No, this is for everybody, stressful people, restless people, frustrated people, angry people, fearful people, panicked people. This is for you. And so this is really good news for people like that. So uh, if that fits the bill for you, you're in a good place because this is a passage for you. So why don't we stand up and read it? And uh, then we'll jump into this. Luke 8, 22 through 25. It's in your bulletin if you have one. Follow along with me. One day, uh, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed. And they said to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Let's pray to this Jesus. Uh, Lord Jesus, you have shown yourself here to be the one who is powerful, the one um, who speaks and everything obeys. Uh, We need you with as powerful a word to speak tonight to us in the midst of the chaos that we're either really well aware of right now that we're in or the places that we will be in soon or that we've just gotten out of. Uh, But Jesus, uh, our fears are kind of put back in order when we see you the way you are. And so that is my prayer tonight. It's simple, it's short, it's weak, but it's to a powerful, powerful God. And so I just ask that you would give us eyes to see you as you are. Then we will worship you. Then we will love you. Then our fears will evaporate. Uh, We ask all of this in your name. Amen. All right, take a seat. So no matter what angle of fear you can relate to, the frustration, the stress, the panic, the anxiety or whatever, fear can kind of be like an earthquake. One minute, it's like this, tranquil, predictable, life's just steadily trucking along. And then out of nowhere, you start to feel these little trembles. And then stuff really violently starts to shake. And stuff starts falling off the wall. And everything that was in order organized, everything had a nice, tidy little place, your house was put together, everything falls off the wall and ends up in a pile of rubble on the floor. And when those earthquakes happen, when the fears come, whatever it is for you, the places you feel this, I'm not safe right now. I'm in danger. I need to run away to somewhere. When those places come, when those earthquakes come, uh, everything falls off the wall. One of the, one of the key things that falls off the wall from its nice, tidy, organized little place and ends up tangled in a, pool, in a pool of rubble at the bottom of the floor is our understanding about God. And there's a big disconnect between, like, tonight, right now, perhaps, your understanding about God is a nice, clean picture on the wall. It makes sense. Hey, look, there's God. I know what he looks like. This is what he's like. But then, like, on a Thursday morning or on a Friday afternoon, or if you go on the retreat and it, it's scary for you, you're new or whatever else, and, and on, a, on a Saturday morning, you wake up to 12 hours with some new people, and, and, and it shakes, and stuff pops off the walls, and you get fogged in, and you can't see anymore, and all you are asking is, where is God now? What is he like? Where'd he go? So that clean picture on the wall where you knew exactly what, where it was and what it was like, it's now down here somewhere in the dust and the rubble. And he's not as clear anymore or his presence isn't as, as easily felt as it was before, right? So the tremors come, stuff falls off, and we lose sight of it. And something that right now probably feels very simple and clear to you can be impossible almost to get an eye on and to see him and to know him as simply and clearly as you do on the easy days, right? And so it's like an earthquake like that. 
Uh, and these are things like our grades and our tests that we take. And sometimes we fail them, sometimes we pass them, sometimes we do fine on them, but we sense a sense of doom going into them. I'm going to die. My program's over. No more nursing school for me. But it's like you see your future evaporating, and these things shake us. And it seems like everywhere you turn, everywhere we turn in our life, there's fresh reasons to be afraid. It's like walking through a minefield. If you look too carefully, left, right, up, down, backwards, forwards, you're going to find things to be afraid of or angry about or stressed about or restless about. Uh, It's all around us. And the worst thing about it all for us is that it seems in those moments like God is asleep at the wheel. Isn't this a fitting picture? God asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. You ever, do you relate to that? God, are you asleep? Am I the only one awake in the midst of this? Uh, and so those are the kind of things that we bump into all the time. Some of you are in a really hard place right now in your life, and this is like, man, preach it. Some of you are like, I don't know if I've ever been in a place that desperate, uh, but put this in your back pocket because those times come for all of us. Uh, and so um, this passage, you want to talk about a time to be terrified or a time to be panicked? A time when literally the room is shaking and stuff's popping off the wall and you in real time, really quickly, have got to come to terms with who do I really think God is? Where do I really think he is? What do I really believe he's like? Because I might die in just a second. And this is a passage like that. So here's a quick little, um, let's set up the passage, look at some of the details. By the way, the reason we point, print out the passage is we don't just want to tell you what the Bible says. We want to teach you how to read the Bible for yourself. So follow along with me. Help me connect dots. Follow along with how we're, how we're saying what the passage says. Here's a little crash course in primitive maritime technique. Um, this is pre-flotation device era. This is pre-Coast Guard era. This is pre-every-little-baby-gets-swimming-lessons era. This is first century Israel. And these fishermen, this is their livelihood. And so uh, here's what you don't do if you want to be a safe uh, uh, fisherman. Number one, stay close to the shore. Because chances are most of the guys in your boat don't know how to swim. And if you're on a gigantic lake like the lake that they are on, storms come up out of the blue. And what are you going to do if you're in the middle, miles from shore to shore, all that's around you is water, and a storm comes. You don't have, it's not like, who are you going to call to come get you? And so, you, advice number one, stay close to the shore, right? That's what they did. Number two, play it safe. Because everybody in all these coastal towns had plenty of stories about Grandpa so-and-so who went out to fish one day and never came home. Kind of like the people in the Bering, the Bering Sea have stories like that. When you live close to the sea, when it's a fisherman town, you have stories of how chaotic and scary the, the ocean is, and so, uh, or, the, or the lake is. And so these people, uh, those are two key. Let's just start with basics. And these are the very two things Jesus like, completely ignores, right? First verse, one day he got into a boat. Uh, let us go across the lake, not circumference, not hugging the shoreline. Hey, put up the sail. Let's go through the diameter of this baby, and let's get to the other side. And by the way, it's time for a nap. Um, so he breaks little navigation rule number one, and then the other one, who's going to save him? They're in the middle of the, ocean, or middle of the lake when uh, a really bad storm comes. And so you're like, oh, this is setting up to be a good story. And Luke doesn't give us many, many other details. We don't know how long 
uh, this storm was. We don't know if this is like 45 minutes into like an epic Hollywood-worthy battle where they're bailing out water. Luke doesn't tell us what it's like for wind to go from 60 to zero in like three seconds. What would that be like? What would it be like for all of that energy in the lake to be built up? You engineers know this. All of that energy, all of those waves to be built up and all of a sudden, bam, no more impetus for the waves. What does that look like? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. He's not concerned to tell us that kind of stuff. What is he interested to tell us? A couple, just a couple of things. The first is this. These guys were beyond the point of mere panic. And they're beyond, they're saying they're little Hail Marys or they're our fathers. They're like, I'm going to die. I better make peace with my maker. I'm, I'm, I'm about to meet my maker. They did meet their maker this day, just in a different encounter than they thought. That's the first thing, though, is that they're in a mere panic. And, and when you hear them say, when Luke says, and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Don't imagine um, a Downton Abbey request. Master, Master, please get up. Master, it appears as though we're perishing. <laughs> imagine sons of anarchy. Get up. Or better yet, with an expletive thrown in there. What are you doing? We are drowning. We are dying. Get up. That's the kind of request Luke authorizes you to read into this passage. This is, they are angry. As you would be angry if you're about to die and one of your friends is snoring on the back of the boat. And so they're, they're panicked, they're angry at Jesus. They're calling Mayday, Mayday as the boat goes down. The second thing is this, and it's just as shocking. Jesus couldn't be in a more opposite posture than the disciples. They're freaking out. And Jesus is snoring on the back of the boat, dreaming of sheeps jumping over fences or whatever he's doing. But it's, it's, it's complete tranquility and rest in the midst of a storm. And it's utter chaos and panic. Life is coming unglued uh, for them over here. Quick little aside as we drive past this scenery. What is Jesus doing in your panicked moments? What is Jesus doing when chaos turns everything in your life upside down? Does it also turn everything in his life upside down? Does he get, is he a captive to the panic and the fear the way we are? Or is he still able? Is he still powerful? Is he still agile? Is he still in control? Is he still at rest because he is king and conqueror and in control of everything? What does Jesus do in your panic moments? This is a picture Not cold indifference, but utter, infinite, powerful control. Steady at the instruments, steady at the wheel, not phased at all. That's what he's like in the midst of our panic. That's just a side note. We've got to push on to our points. So the climax of the whole passage, it's not the intensity of the storm, it's not just the disciples panic, and it's not just Jesus' tranquility. It ends, the climax is two questions at the end. What are the two questions? Look down at your sheet. Two questions. This is the point of Luke uh, letting us see this close encounter with Jesus and giving us this close encounter with Jesus. Two key questions. Number one, where is your faith? That's one of the key points Luke brings up. Where is your faith? The second key question that Luke brings up, who Who is this Jesus? It's a question Luke's been bringing up a lot. Do you remember it from all the past sermons? Who is this who forgives sins? 
Who is this who heals? Who is this? An important question. I'd suggest to you these are the two key questions we should be asking inside of our fears, inside of the panicked places, inside of the stressful places, except reverse them. First, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Utterly in control. And second, where is my faith? Why the lack of faith if he's like this? So, we're kind of getting a, a clear picture of how, uh, of kind of the landscape of the passage, and, but now we need to kind of connect the dots and say, okay, let's bring that event into tonight and into this week and wherever you are in life right now, the places where we feel unsafe, the places where we feel threatened and vulnerable and fragile, like the slightest little turn of the wind is going to break us to pieces. And so the first thing we're going to talk about in terms of fear is it, fear uh, interprets. Fear grows out of your interpretation of reality. It doesn't just pop out into the atmosphere out of the event itself. Fear comes out of your heart. It comes out of your interpretation of what's happening around you. And it, it, get this. You don't have to be a philosophy major to get this. But nobody experiences reality for what it is and as it is except God himself. We are all inside of the fishbowl. Only someone outside of the fishbowl sees things as they are and can describe reality as it is, which is why we need the Bible. Without the Bible, you're just a fish in the fishbowl trying to say, oh, all of reality is water. All of reality is covered by glass. All of reality has other goldfish in it. No, God stands outside of it. He sees things as they are. He is the correct interpreter, and we are kind of cataract covered interpreters. But fear is my interpretation of what's happening. It doesn't mean that really is what's happening. If you don't believe me, get in a relationship. Because sometimes roommates will say to other roommates one thing, and they mean this, but the roommate takes it this way. You're like, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. Interpret it the other way. You're interpreters. But your interpretation doesn't necessarily line up with the reality. You're, get a boyfriend or a girlfriend if you really want sparks to fly in terms of interpretation. But we're always interpreting. And this is really important because this means that um, this means that fear often is a misinterpreter of reality. Fear, fear tells a story. Anxiety tells a story. It preaches sermons all the time. Most of us never slow down to ask the question, oh, wait a minute, is this true? Can I trust this? Because it feels so visceral. It feels like it just comes out of our body and we trust, I trust my feelings more than just about anything else. My experiences, my emotions, they don't have to have any identification papers. They always get through with me. But we need to start checking papers and we need to start doubting and we need to start arguing with what are often false interpretations of reality. We need to push pause in the midst of fear. And say, what is my fear saying? What story is it telling? Because that's really, really important. Fear is a chatterbox. It's always talking. And we need to be alert to it. So what, what does fear say? Here's a few things. Fear says, you can trust me. First thing fear says, you can trust me. And the, and the problem with fear is we are embodied spirits. God gave us a body as much as he gave us a soul. And our body is as important as our soul is. And the two are completely intertwined and tangled up. And so sometimes when something starts in your heart, 
like you feel it in your bones. And sometimes when something starts in your bones, like you get the flu, guess what? You get cynical. You get impatient. You get angry. What started in the body goes to the heart. And so what starts in, in a feeling, an emotion, turns into our heart. And we say, I can trust this. I feel it. it. It feels like it matches up with reality, right? I'm scared. Therefore, I should be scared. So fear says, you can trust me. It insists on being believed. It doesn't allow for other interpretations of what's going on other than its interpretation. And the disciples, do you see them doing this? You and I get a better, we have an easier job with this than they did because we're standing outside of the account saying, this is Jesus. Hebrews 1 says, all things were created by the word of his power. He spoke, let there be light, and guess what comes? Light. He said, let the land rise up from the water and continents shot up out of the ocean. He's the creator. Why is there a reason to be afraid when the stuff he created is acting in accordance to the way he is, is commanding it to act in that moment. And so they should have known, but they didn't. This is the one who said, go this far and no further to the waters. Uh, but they forgot that because fear insisted on its interpretation, uh, not Jesus's. Fear also says you're alone. Scan through real quick your fears and frustrations and stresses. Who is in that story? Especially when fear points to the future. And it says, this is going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen. Or if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you. Who is there when that thing happens? Just you. In your misery, without a God, without hope, without grace, without anybody else who can help you, just you. Fear murders everybody else, and it leaves just you there. And it says, you can trust me. And it says, you're going to be alone it shrinks all of reality, all of your life down to you and the threat. And it blacks out everything else. So no wonder it misinterprets. Fear says God is asleep. We'll talk in a second what it means that Jesus is sleeping. But fear says God, in his divinity, in his humanity, all of him, he is asleep or indifferent or doesn't care or he's callous or aloof to what you're going through right now. And so fear says, if God is asleep, you better get working. You better get busy. And this is why fear makes us very anxious, very active, very exhausted people. It's because we have to fill the role of God if he's not there and if he's asleep. And I would suggest to you the disciples uh, are trying to do that uh, in a lot of ways. They're trying to tame the chaos by getting the water out of the boat. It's not a bad thing at all. I'm not saying they should just go down. Um, But I am saying, if you check their hearts, I bet what they were trying to do is tell the waves to be still in their own way. The last thing fear says is, you're doomed. It adds up all the dots, you're alone, God is asleep, or AWOL. Um, All you have is you and your resources inside of this problem. Uh, Connect the dots, and you're doomed. And it says your future is sealed, and you're in big trouble. And so, here's the point. Fear, anxiety, whatever. It's an atheistic prophet. It looks to the future and it prophesies a future where God is dead and you're alone. You see how fear is a problem or, or the wrong kind of fear can kill you? Because it kills God in a sense. Nothing can kill God, but you know what I mean. It blacks him out, turns the lights out to him. And we begin living in a world where there is no God, no grace, no hope. 
And so it says, after you fail the test, or after you break up, or after your friends find out this piece of your story, or after your parents' marriage dissolves and falls apart, or after you get a job and you don't really like it, then you're doomed, because then it's just you. Can you relate? This is what fear does. This is what it says. And so, uh, really quickly, just to make this point before we push on to the second point, some of us never really question our fears. We just think fear is just like this neutral emotion, take it for what it is, believe it for what it says, and push on. Or find some coping mechanism to pretend like it's not really true. Um, But a lot of us, because we don't question our fears, we obey them. And we rebuild our lives around whatever our fear says is reality. And this is what that looks like. We begin to venture into sexual territory we would never venture into before. Why? Because you're terrified if I don't do this, he's going to leave me. Or she's going to leave me. You obey your fear. Or we never talk to new faces at RUF, in your class, uh, at church, whatever. We never talk to new people. Why? What if I don't know what to say? What if they don't remember my name next week and it kind of invalidates me as a person? And we obey our fear, and so we don't love. But we purge and we vomit meals. Why? Because we obey our fear. What happens if you lose this lever of control in your life where you kind of keep your finger on the dial of the chaos? You don't want to imagine what life will be like if you let go of that lever. And so we obey our fears. And all of this adds up and it says Jesus can't be trusted. Here's, here's one last way. Talk, if you're interested in ministry or missions or you do ministry, you want to love your friends well, fear also says you better sail close to the shore because Jesus won't bail you out if you get stuck in a storm. Don't take risks. Never sail outside of your own abilities. Stay inside the tight little confines of what you're able to do on your own. Because God will leave you high and dry if you go past that boundary marker and you get out of your depth. This is all the stuff that fear says. And so we also miss a lot of opportunities for the kingdom of God, a lot of opportunities for ministry. Why? Because we follow those old maritime practices. Because we don't believe Jesus is on the boat with us and I had better stay in the shallow end of the pool. But if Jesus is on your boat, the whole lake is free game. Go wherever you want. And so the point of that is we need to learn to doubt the story that fear is telling. We need to learn to argue with it because God is very much in the picture, right? Like I said, you and I have it easy. We get to read on and say, oh, Jesus was there. Oh, and and they didn't know Jesus was going to wake up and say, peace be still. They were waking him up not to tell the wind to stop. They were waking him up to get a bucket and start bailing out. But we have a little bit easier vantage point, and so we can say God is very much in the, in the picture in uh, our places of panic and fear and stress and frustration. And so don't tune out now from this sermon, because if you do, all you'll hear is law. Start arguing with your fears. Start doubting. Do, 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 do. But you won't hear how Jesus, in his grace and mercy, meets you and empowers us to change. So keep listening or else you're going to be a depressed person next week's sermon um, or Stuart's <laughs> seminar this weekend at the uh, retreat. So the second thing is this. Fear doesn't just interpret, it exposes. This is juicy stuff. Fear exposes. Fear introduces me 
to the God I actually believe in. Not the God I talk about when I'm leading worship or the God I talk about in my Bible study, the God that I read about in books. But fear introduces Ben Coppage to the God that Ben really believes in. Just like fear introduced the disciples into the Jesus they really thought they believed. An impotent, sleeping, indifferent, powerless Jesus. But here's the good news. As your bulletins say, uh, fear exposes. It shows me where I'm asleep, not where Jesus is asleep. Uh, and that's one way that uh, fear does tell the truth. Uh, it points uh, to where I'm asleep and not, and not to where uh, Jesus is asleep. Did you catch it when there is still a problem? Or the first problem that Jesus acknowledges is after the storm's already stopped. It's the first time Jesus ever acknowledges something's going on here. There's a problem. And it's after everything is perfectly quiet and tranquil and under control. Because in Jesus' estimation, get this, in Jesus' estimation, is an existential immediate threat to your life and well-being more dangerous to you or erasing God from all of reality through our fears? Which is more dangerous and destructive to you? Which does Jesus take issue with? I think he tells the storm to, to calm down, A, to show them who he really is, but also to give a chance to engage the deeper problem, the, the real problem here, uh, which is, where is your faith? How did you erase me so easily? How does, when the earthquake comes and the walls shake and the pictures fall into the rubble on the floor, how have you forgotten me so quickly, what I'm like, who I am, what I've promised you, where I am? That's what will kill us. Uh, that's what will destroy us, uh, is erasing God out of the picture. And Okay, I read this passage at first, and I'm always like, Jesus, are you serious? These guys were about to die, and you're like quibbling about whether they were scared or not? Come on, like, throw them a bone here. Uh, they all thought they were going to sink into the bottom of a very deep lake. But if you think that way like me, you're still looking at the passage from a kind of a faithless angle. Because imagine what heaven saw in this episode. Imagine what angels, those who could see with clear eyes, what did they see in this moment? They saw the creator of all the universe with these disciples inside of a storm. They saw the one who said, like in Job, ocean, come this far, but do not go an inch further. And the ocean stops. They saw that Jesus, the eternal Jesus. They saw Jesus, the God. Uh, and so, of course, when the disciples start to question him, it's offensive because it's blasphemous. Because it looks at Jesus in the eye and says, you're not God. You're powerless. You're not who you say you are. That's why he jumps on it. Because it's dangerous to us and it's dangerous to his disciples. And so here's the point. Here's a little tidbit. Like, fear isn't just one-dimensional. It's not just horizontal. Like, I'm afraid, of, um, I'm afraid of the test next week, that I'll be, I, won't, I won't have time to prepare, and so I'm going to go into that test unprepared, out of control, and my future as a student in this program is up into the professor's hands or whatever. And so we float into that, um, uh, and, we, and we fear that, and I, but all we see is the horizontal. It's just about us in a test. We don't see the vertical there. We don't see what our hearts have fallen in love with, which is control or which is a good grade or which is an easy life or comfort or whatever else. We don't see the vertical. We don't see how God is involved in the midst of that fear. We just see the fear itself. And I'm saying fear is three-dimensional. 
We've got to turn our heads around and look at this and look up and say it in every point. Where's God in this? What is my fear saying about him? And who is he actually uh, in the midst of this? Uh, and so if you, if you see that, you'll know that he is actually, though he is asleep in his humanity, he is just as much every bit God. Just as much holding together all of the universe in the palm of his hand and by the power of his word. Uh, and so those are important things to see. Now, I've got I to say this one thing real quick. Then I'll illustrate it and we'll wind down. Why do we talk about sin so much? Even with anxiety, doesn't this seem harsh? Come on. Tenderness, Ben. Jesus, tenderness. He's tender nine times out of ten. But this is the place where he says you can't stop at tenderness with anxiety. Because there is a cancerous root. And here it is. If you're around, I think it was last fall. Do you remember when I read the David Foster Wallace quote? He said, if you love money, you'll never have enough. If you love good looks, you'll always be finding the prettier person than you. If you love control, you'll never feel like you're in control. Well, you could switch that quote this way. If you love money, you will be terrified of poverty. If you love time, you will be so angry when anybody asks for it or takes it, whether it's traffic or someone in a relationship. If you love comfort, you will be terrified of anything in life that's hard. What is it? What do we love? Because fear exposes what I love and cling with with white knuckles. Because fear is kind of the suburb. If, if, if my loves and my desires and my precious little things are the cities, fear is the suburbs. Fear always clusters around the things that we love. If you love uh, relationships validating you and someone saying you are worth it, you mean something, you're important. You will be terrified of the day your significant other will wake up and say someone else, not you, is more important or has caught my attention. You see how it works? What we fear is the flip side of what we love. And that's why Jesus is on the ball with saying, where is your faith? And saying, we can't just say, be ten- uh, it's okay, don't be afraid. We have to say more than that. And so he digs deeper into it. And the flip side is this. If you love God more than anything else, you will avoid anything that gets in between you and him. See how it works as well there? There is such thing as a good thing of fear. And that's the third point. <coughs> to transition into the third point, I want to give you this illustration real quick. A mother bird with her nest. Um, it's been hot the past three weeks. We have birds building nests in our backyard right now. I saw it today. It's kind of, I don't know if that happens normally this time of year. but uh, So this, this, these two little birds are building a nest back on my back patio right now. And um, imagine in a couple of months when those babies come, they hatch and it's time to get them out of the nest. What is, what is the mother bird going to do? At first, she starts to flap her wings to get the babies to begin to flap their wings and strengthen them up so that they can fly. Because why? Birds are made to fly. Freedom for a bird is not on the ground. It's in the air. But what if one of those little baby birds becomes so attached, so in love with the comfort and security of the nest, which was good, but a nest is good for a season, right? It's good for a particular purpose and a particular time. But what if that little bird falls so in love with that nest that it never wants to leave? If this mother bird loves the little baby bird, what is she going to do? She's going to start dismantling that nest piece 
by peace while the baby bird is in it. Now, what's life for that baby bird going to be like? Panic. Because the baby bird doesn't know what the mother's doing. And it thinks, the thing that is holding up the weight of my life is giving way and fracturing, and I'm about to fall and die, just like the disciples. But Jesus is the one who said, go this way. And he's kind of in control of the weather, so don't you think he knew a little storm's going to come this way? Jesus steers them directly into trouble. Jesus steers them directly into a storm, directly into chaos. Why? To shake them up. To expose, right? Fear exposes to expose who they really are, who he really is. Like the mother bird who loves the little baby birds and wants to see them fly because she knows they're made for the air, not the ground. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you are made for God. You are made to love him, to trust him. Not to trust every little circumstance being right all the time. And any time one little variable turns, you freak out. You were made to trust God and to know his eyes are on you and for you. And so Jesus, from asleep on a pillow, begins to pull out twigs of the bird's nest. In control all the time. He starts to push these guys out of the boat, as it were. Pushes you in the midst of your panic, in the midst of life falling apart. The nest giving way beneath your feet. (coughs) Is Jesus asleep or are, are you asleep? Is Jesus actually the mother bird who is completely awake, completely alert, completely strategic in what he's doing? And he's waking us up because we're asleep to who he really is and to where he really is and to what he's really like. It's a big question. Who's asleep? Who's doing the waking up here? The disciples? Or is Jesus waking up a boat full of snoring disciples who have no clue who he really is? But now they do. Do you think if a storm came up, On the return trip to the shore, do you think they'd respond the same way? I don't think they would. I think they would stand around and say, uh, can you do that again? (laughs) But they wouldn't be afraid. Even if he didn't do it, even if the storm raged on, he wouldn't be afraid. And so that's like the mother bird, which sets us up beautifully to end quickly on our last point, which is this, fear worships. Fear interprets, fear exposes, but fear worships. The more I fear Jesus, the less I'll fear my circumstances. And get out your pen and write this down because it's important. Remember it if you can. But only fear can conquer fear. Only fear can conquer fear. You can't fight fear with anything else. All the world can give you is coping mechanisms. All the world can give you is repeat this and and, and keep saying it to yourself until you believe it's true. But a lot of times, sometimes that stuff's helpful. But a lot of times what they're doing is saying, pretend like reality is not true. Pretend like the world's not really a dangerous place or not really a fragile place. But Jesus says, though the world is dangerous, though it is fragile, though it is hard, though it is difficult, I am neck deep in it with you. And that matters. And so only fear can conquer fear. Now, really quick, what does it mean to fear Jesus? Does it mean to be afraid of him? No, it doesn't. And is it ironic the first time the word fear comes up is after the storm is over, after the rebuke is over. Greek word for fear, phobeo, phobia. It only comes up after everything's tranquil. And the first time the disciples say, I am fearful. Why? Or Luke says the disciples are fearful. It's when they, after they see Jesus, be Jesus. After they see Jesus, be God, be the God that he is. Then they're afraid. Here's what the fear means. 
Have you ever had a moment when the hair on the back of your head has stood up and your jaw just kind of goes slack and you're amazed and marvel and just take it all in and you're like, your, your knees go weak and you're like, oh my gosh. Maybe that's not the best description of what it is to fear Jesus, but that's getting warmer. It's hard to describe. It's not a terror of him. It is a jaw-dropping, holy, fill in the blank. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I asked him to bail me out with a bucket. And he just told molecules of water to turn around. And he just reversed whatever processes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's what fear is. It's realizing that Jesus you thought was a little poodle on a leash is actually a lion who doesn't take kindly to being on leashes of any kind. But he roars around and gets his way every single time. That's what it means to fear Jesus. And the disciples feared Jesus after he put things back in order. And I guarantee you, um, if a storm came up later, they wouldn't respond the same way. These disciples would run away again in fear. Peter would deny Jesus three times, right? But there's also times after the resurrection, one more time when they get to see Jesus sturdy and strong in the midst of chaos, of the death of the cross, of bearing the wrath for our sin. They see Jesus get up out of death, get up out of sin, get up out of wrath. And guess what? They don't run in fear anymore. These are the men who will look dead in the eye of executioners as if they don't give a rip. I don't give a rip if you're going to crucify me upside down. I don't give a rip if you're going to burn me alive in front of the Colosseum. I couldn't care less. I'm not afraid of you, Caesar. I'm not afraid of you, jailer. I'm not afraid of you, ridiculers and mockers. Fear of Jesus has reoriented every other fear in my life, and I'm finally free. I'm finally flying. I'm not stuck on the ground anymore. That is the gospel. Jesus will let your fear of him as you continually have close encounters with him through his word and you see him as he is and you see him in your own life show up in the midst of your storms and bail you out. As you see that, you, your jaw will drop and you will begin to trust him more and more and you will find yourself doing different things in the midst of your fear. Um, for the sake of time, we need to end here, but if you want to go to Village Inn and talk about practical, okay, what do I do tomorrow when I'm afraid again? I have a whole page on that. We're not going to have time to get to it. But we'll talk about it, or maybe it's at the winter retreat. We'll talk about uh, some practical things. What do I do next time I'm afraid? To turn to Jesus in that moment, to push pause, and to ask, where is he? Who is he? What is he like? Uh, And he's here with me. So let's pray uh, that Jesus would reorient our fears, point them back to us, uh, himself. Lord Jesus, uh, my prayer is short and simple again, just like it was before. We need you to show us that you're in the boat with us in our storms and that sometimes you steer us into storms to shake loose the things that we have grabbed hold of, things that could be good, but things that have begun to be our God that we have to have to be safe. Teach us that we are safe when we're with you. And that's the end of the sentence. I am safe because of Jesus, not because of any other variable in my life. We want this to be true in our hearts so that we will love you and worship you more and give you the glory you deserve. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.